You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 21st of May 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. Thank you for overcoming so many aggressions and so many lies. Nicolas Maduro wins Venezuela's presidential election, but did anyone else really have a chance? My guests Isabel Hilton and Ivo Geber will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the latest televised showdown between the people hoping to become the next president of Mexico, the revealing of Italy's new prime minister, and the reason that cohabitation and marriage are no longer going together like a horse and carriage in Hong Kong. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. So, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Isabel Hilton, editor of China Dialogue, and Ivor Geber, professor of political journalism at the University of Sussex. Welcome both. And we start in Venezuela, where, to the surprise of nobody at all, President Nicolas Maduro has been returned to office, winning another six-year term with 67.7% of the vote. Equally predictably, his opponents are claiming that the poll was fixed. The main opposition candidate, Henry, Fal- and Henry Falcon, rather, has caused for new, called for new elections. Uh, If one continues to bet with form, Venezuela's many problems seem likely to worsen. After years of profligate mismanagement by Maduro, the country has the world's highest inflation rate, plus shortages of food, medicine and increasingly shortages of Venezuelans who possess the wherewithal to leave the country. Um, Isabel, is this this is presumably good news for Nicolas Maduro. Uh, Is it good news for anybody else? Um, Not really, no. Uh, I mean, he's... The thing about having an election in a crisis is that if you can change the government, then everyone is, you know, sympathetic. But this has managed to make uh, Venezuela and the administration even less credible, I think, both in the eyes of most Venezuelans who either didn't vote or voted for the opposition and uh, and indeed the international uh, observers and customers and uh, major allies. So I really think this remains a friendless country. Uh, This will solve none of their problems, many of which can be laid at the door of Maduro. And I fear that he's not going to last his six years, I suspect. And I think the crisis will simply deepen. Uh, Ivor, the the, the description of Venezuela as friendless is an interesting one, isn't it? Because that's been the or one of the key differences between Maduro and his predecessor, Hugo Chavez, because while uh, Chavez was in power, there was, uh, rightly or wrongly, a great deal of sympathy uh, for Venezuela, especially among other Latin American countries. There no longer is. Can Venezuela really, or more to the point, can Maduro really survive without it? Well, I don't know about in in economic terms because it was mainly political support that um, Venezuela was getting from the likes of Ecuador, Ecuador, and the those other countries that followed. Well, up to and including the city of London at the time under <laughs> under Ken Livingston, indeed, who has just resigned from the Labour Party. I hear, but that's another issue. Um, the issue, though, seems to me um, pivotal. I mean, we haven't. Uh, Early on in the conversation, I bring up the name of Donald Trump because U.S. involvement in South America over the decades has been an important point. Whether the United States seeks again to ally, to to um, assemble um, a coalition that will seek to topple um, the Venezuelan government, 
by non-military means, I would hasten to point out. Because at the moment, although there are sanctions, um, those talk about tightening them, which implies they're, they're not absolute. Um, the other interesting point is the role of Cuba in this. Will they, will they continue to support with an, a, a new leader, a relatively new leader in Cuba? Will they continue to support Venezuela? So I think at the moment there's a lot, of di- a, a, a lot in play, um, but I agree with Isabel that... Um, the prospects of him surviving, I think his full term in office, isn't it six years? Yeah, six years. Whether he, I, I think his chances of surviving for six years are not great. I, I think it's quite a difficult situation, actually, for Trump. Um, not that I'm usually very sympathetic, but um, Washington, like most capitals, is is essentially a one-issue town. And right now they've got at least two rather difficult crises going on and a summit coming up in with uh, with North Korea. And we've also seen oil prices go way up to $80 a barrel. Now, ordinarily, that would be good news for Venezuela. But but this, the, oil, uh, the oil business in Venezuela is now in such bad shape that it's unlikely that Venezuela can reap very substantial benefit for this. So Venezuela went down when the oil price went went down, but since then things have become so parlous that that at the moment they you know they're, they're just not refining and exporting enough to to get the benefit of a raise a rise of oil price but if Venezuela really collapses then you have another global oil shock which i don't think Trump particularly once since he's already embattled with Iran so you know you have quite a lot of interlocking issues then i think that probably non action might be the best policy for Trump <laughs> um Either there is uh, there's the undoubted case that Nicolas Maduro can make, though he probably wouldn't make it like this. That that whether or not uh, there was a thumb on the scales when the votes were counted, uh, many millions of Venezuelans did certainly vote for him. Do we understand what it is that the people who are voting for Maduro are voting for? Well, I think there's a split between. The, I mean, there are allegations that that. Um, I'm not sure it's called vote rigging, but people were being harassed and intimidated into voting for him. I also think there's quite a legacy um, going back, which going back to the Chavez era, where the poor, particularly outside the cities of Venezuela, saw the socialist government of Chavez and Maduro as on their side. Um, and I think that legacy remains despite the privations. I think the other issue is the collapse of the opposition, who have fought and now... You know, sadly, well, sadly, is that me making comment? I think it is. Demoralised, didn't even put up any opposition. The the candidate who stood against Maduro, Falco, was was one of his ex-associates. So I think we've got a mixture of um, a legacy of still support for the socialist project, if you want to call it that, plus an absolutely disillusioned um, opposition, plus the fact that the official turnout figures have been severely questioned. And we might well be talking about a turnout of less than one in three people voted with their feet. Uh, Isabel, Maduro, as he sees it, uh, has secured his uh, position. He claims to have a mandate. That being the case, supposing he was seized on day one of his second term with a a sudden, and it would have to be said, uncharacteristic um, sort of flush of common sense, what, what should he actually do? Well, um, I mean, they have they have a problem of, of, of quite substantial debt payments coming up. Uh, China's not going to lend any more, uh, China says. Um, 
and uh, and it's not at all clear where that is going to come from. So I think we can expect, you know, they've been sort of getting through by printing money, hence the hyperinflation. Yes, that's that's gone well. That has gone really well. Um, so I think he, I mean, I suppose the conventional remedy would be to call in the the auditors and accept austerity, which is what Venezuela's done in the in the in the commodity cycle in the past. But 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 the Chavistas, of whom Maduro is one, have actually you know part of a large part of that debt has been spent on essentially buying votes. You know, there've been welfare programs for the poor, which continue, and so a lot of the people who voted for him are direct beneficiaries. Fisheries, but the money's running out, and then I think you know we have we have a problem. Were he to impose austerity, then uh, the last few remaining, I think, voters would turn their backs and and call betrayal. Well, moving seamlessly along uh, on the subject of presidential elections in Latin America uh, to Mexico, where voters will choose a successor to Enrique Peña Nieto on July 1st. The second televised presidential debate took place over the weekend. The current frontrunner is the veteran left-winger André Manuel López Obrador, embarking on his third tilt at the presidency. He got a bit of a roughing up from his opponents, notably Ricardo Anaya, but was generally held to have maintained his composure. Unsurprisingly, a motif of the debate, as it has been of the campaign in general is how best to deal with the president of Mexico's northern neighbour, who has not been notable for the warmness of his outreach across the Rio Grande. Um, Thinking about this journalistically, Mexico is a hugely important country and a huge country, 127 million people, give or take. Um, Is it weird that the Western world pays so little attention to this election versus the extraordinary amounts of attention it pays, obviously, to the US presidential election? It is. It's it's weird but unsurprising. I mean, the same could be argued to a less extent um, for Canada in the sense that if you've got a bright, shining sun, then it tends to... You can't see the, the satellites. You know what I mean. We can't see it. So that does tend to be the issue, although I think Mexico now has a higher profile, precisely because of, here we go again with his name, Trump's threats, etc., etc., has brought Mexico much more into focus. Um, I don't suppose the non-American world was as vividly aware of the relationship between Mexico and the US until Trump came along talking about walls and NAFTA. So I think you're right. It is surpri- it's not surprising, and I think that is slightly changing. But of course, the other thing is Mexican politics for many, many years was rather boring with the same party being elected time and time again. That is changing. So maybe the politics of Mexico is going to bring itself to the world's attention as well as the fact that it's got a big row with a big neighbour. Um, Isabel, Trump, uh, who is obviously a figure in this presidential election, he sort of seemed to make everything in the world all about him at some level or another. Uh, but is it... Is he actually important uh, as uh, an election issue in Mexico, or is it just that all the candidates for the Mexican presidency realise that you're not going to lose votes in Mexico by beating up on Donald Trump? And it produced a remarkable degree of unanimity. They may not agree on anything else, but they have, have all pledged to restore the dignity of Mexico and stand up to the to the bullying neighbour uh, from the north. Um so you can't ignore him, no, because because NAFTA is hugely important, and 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 because so many people are involved. You know, we are seeing deportations, we are seeing you know very unpleasant treatment um, of migrants, and and this is making people uh, very angry. So at a popular level, everybody has to address this. 
But beyond that, you do have, at least in Mexico, you do have a sort of left-right choice here. You know, the PAN, which has always been the party of business and was, you know, one of the first parties to emerge from under the shadow of the wonderfully uh, named uh, revolutionary, the pre-institutional revolutionary party, which ran Mexico for 70 years. Um, and, and, you know, they're, they're clearly to the right and they've uh, collecting around them a bit of a coalition uh, to try to stop Lopez Obrador. Uh, but Lopez Obrador is still, you know, is, is delivering a message that, that about, I think people uh, want to hear. But it, And it's largely an anti-corruption message. I mean, Mexico has real problems, uh, not not just Donald Trump. It has big problems with the drug, the drug trade and it has the uncertainty caused by the, the, you know, the NAFTA renegotiations. But it has enormous strengths. We tend to talk about Mexico in terms of poor people struggling to, you know, go and pick berries in California. But there's a strong industrial economy. It's actually in pretty good shape, Mexico, as as a as a as a substantial um, economy and a substantial country. And they're making nice noises to China, uh, as a lot of Latin America is, uh, in the hope that you know, if if something bad does happen with uh, with NAFTA, that there's some fallback position. I did particularly like the fact that all four candidates in the debate, apparently, I, I admit I didn't listen to it, um, agreed that they were happy that they that a Mexico should be a transit should allow refugees from poorer countries in Guatemala and, and so forth coming through, which is something which is not likely to please President Trump. Um, the idea that it would do a Europe, if you like, with yeah. refugees from poor areas. And it does show a united front on, on certain issues. I, do, I, I think Mexico, as, as Isabel was saying, is economically... I, I was there recently, I confess, on a holiday. And it did have that feeling of... Well, I was going to now contradict myself. It had a great feeling of stability. Equally, on the other hand, we should never forget that Mexico is the most dangerous place in the world to be a journalist. It's also, Isabel, a pretty dangerous place to be a politician by the best guesses of people who are monitoring this. And this is a, it's an extraordinary figure so far with a couple of months still to go in this election because it's not just the presidential election. There's lots of various municipal and, and state offices being contested. At least 36 candidates have been murdered. Uh, in various parts of Mexico, they're having difficulty finding people. Well, not unsurprisingly, they're finding dif- they're having difficulty finding anyone actually willing to run for some vacant positions. Yeah, these these levels of violence are, are that that is one of the real problems Mexico has, and it tends to be associated with the drug trade. And uh, I, you know, we have had various uh, attempts to deal with this. Um, it's pretty tough. Uh, it's also something, frankly, that requires a, more cooperation with the U.S. than than Mexico is likely to get uh, in under present circumstances, since that's where the drugs are going. And the producer countries have always said, you know, you 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 call on us to kill the drugs trade, but how about not buying the drugs? Wouldn't that help? Um, that's not a conversation that's going to go very well in present circumstances, and and the violence is uh, is extremely serious. Uh, just a, 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 a quick thought on this one, to return to the fact that the next Mexican president will have to deal with Donald Trump. Um, once they get past the sort of beating up on Trump for electoral purposes, 
what is the best way forward for a Mexican president, who obviously, for whom I think the relationship is going to be more obviously troublesome than pretty much any other world leader? Is there something to be said for just going full Vicente Fox, this being, of course, the former president of Mexico who regularly makes much praised and much enjoyed online appearances just calling Donald Trump names? (laughs) I mean, I, I'm very reluctant to give advice to any political leader how to deal with President Trump. As, <laughs> as Mr. Macron has, in, has, has demonstrated, um, he is unpredictable that if you cuddle up to Donald Trump, he bites your head off just as much as if you take him on. Um, I think Mexico, clearly the, the, the Trump does, did more or less unite the four candidates. Um, and I think that um, a Mexican president who dealt with Trump, who stood up to Trump, um, might be doing economic harm, but would do himself, you know, it politically would be advantageous. I think he has to deal with him with kid gloves. But, he, you know, Trump is so unpredictable. Who am I to predict? I mean, we're not dealing with somebody who's who's totally predictable. I'll put it as politely as that. OK, well, we will take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Isabel Hilton and Ivor Gaber. Coming up next, meet Italy's new Prime Minister. The Monocle Quality of Life Conference returns for a fourth year, and this time we're touching down in Zurich. Join Monocle's editors and a lineup of tack-sharp panellists for lively debate, informed conversation and top-notch hospitality. Whether you're an architect, city maker, retailer, media mogul or chef, pick up a ticket and be part of the debate on upping quality of life across the board. This year, there will also be a special focus on entrepreneurship and making it in the city. We'll be diving headlong into all Zurich has to offer, from fine food, Swiss wine and river swims, to private tours of the best shops and ateliers. So why not join us from the 28th to the 30th of June? Find out more and book your ticket now at conference.monocle.com. You're back with Midori House, with me, Andrew Miller. Still with me are Isabel Hilton and Ivor Gaber. And to Italy now, where the forging of an unlikely governing alliance between the leftish populists of Five Star and the rightish populists of Lega has prompted a plenitude of questions, to most of which the answers are likely going to be some variant of ARG. That's spelled A-R-G-H. One of the more important ones is who is going to be the next Prime Minister. Within the last hour, it has been confirmed that it will nigh certainly be Giuseppe Conte, a 54-year-old law professor at the University of Florence uh, and a member of Five Star. Uh, Ivor, you lived in and reported from Italy for some time. Uh, On past form, although I realise for reasons we will doubtless get to, past form may not be a lot of help to us. Is there going to be much point in remembering Mr Conte's name, do you think? On past form, I can confidently say I don't know. <laughs> we are in such uncharted waters. We seem to be saying that on every, on every issue, but for start, the two parties... Um, who, have, who are forming this coalition didn't exist 10 years ago. So, well, that the, the League did, but it was then the Northern League, and it was a very unpleasant racist party. I think it's shifted a little bit towards the away from those outer fringes. Certainly the Five Star Movement didn't exist. Um, but the political merry-go-round in Italy has slowed down a bit. I mean, there was a t- when I was there, uh, president, prime ministers moved. Ambulance crews gave up asking accident victims to test whether they were fully conscious, whether they suffered a concussion. 
<laughs> who, is, who is the Prime Minister? They, they gave up answering that question because usually the crews themselves didn't know because they didn't have 24-hour news. So to, to go the, back... The, the crews themselves were presumably worried it might be one of them. <laughs> yes, indeed. I mean, Profe- <laughs> I, 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 Professor Conte, who I have to say until tonight was unknown to me, does, re- does represent a very good trend, I, sp- I, I think, speaking as a professor, of making the likes of him and me Prime Ministers. But leaving that to one side, <laughs> um, he's clearly... A te- it's not new to have it. He's not quite a technocrat because he does have a bit of a political past. But my prediction, finally answering your question, is I don't think he'll last because I think this coalition between Five Star and the League is so unstable, has such profound contradictions within it, that I cannot see this government lasting. It is just a real recipe for instability. And ten years later, you'll be looking with with Professor Conte <laughs> still in power, saying, didn't get that one right, did you? Um, well, Isabel, on, on that subject, is the prospect of a, a governing coalition between Five Star and Lega looking any less preposterous the more we find out about it? No, but then, you know, the election result was pretty preposterous altogether. I, uh, look, you've got a country which is weary of politics. And, you know, for... for a lot of my life, Italy barely had a government at all and, and, and got on fine. It was the biggest argument for for not having a government. People just got on with things, didn't pay tax, didn't... But they just... They, they were pretty productive and it was pretty Water stable. came out of the taps. Water Tra- came out of the taps and, and occasionally yeah. the rubbish got cleared. And, and but, but it was a time when economies were in a healthier state than they are now. This is very true. And, and the, the yeah. Italian economic condition now is causing the, the Brussels... And, and not just Brussels, real concern, because if the contradictory programmes of the League and the Five Star are followed, the, the it, it, Italian indebtedness would make Greece seem like an affluent, stable Absolutely. country. Absolutely, and that was the nightmare, of course, even you know without this political complication, that was the nightmare when the European debt crisis began, that Italy would wobble. We can cope with Greece, but if Italy wobbles, we are in a much more difficult situation. And and the problem, you know, as with all populist governments, is that they make promises that are going to be very expensive without any plan to carry them through. So, I, you know, I think that this is going to be... I understand why people are frustrated and we are still dealing all across Europe with the aftermath of the financial crisis to which, in the intervening period, there has been very little effective response from from politicians. The same people who caused it continue to prosper and the people who are paying for it continue to pay for it. So the, the politics are becoming more and more implausible because the more plausible politics didn't deliver. This won't deliver either. So I think that we are lurching towards yet another but this crisis. is the first time a populist government and both those these two wings of populist have come to power in a major country. Okay, my Polish friends might contest it. But a, well, or they, Hungary. Or yeah. Hungarian. Well, I was thinking major. But nonetheless, the, the Polish government does not accept it as populist. But this is the first time that the European Union has had to work with a a, a, a country that's a major country that's got a populist government and a populist government which I say has got com- the programmes of the two parties. It's not a surprise it took 80 days to negotiate um, a compromise but how long it will last? I mean, one thing, it won't be boring. There was a, 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 a report tonight that one of the, the chief whip of the, the League um, 
in response to a German MEP expressing some concern, told him to mind his bloody business, which I think is a new level of discourse in the European Union and might make for a little more something more interesting. But if I was an Italian, I would be a little worried. Certainly the markets have reacted extremely negatively to this move. Uh, Isabel, how should the, the rest of the EU, certainly the establishment EU, which I suspect is going to be other than delighted by these developments, play this? Because this is, as they've learned before, it's one of those things that the harder you push back against any populist movement, that more that reinforces the populist movement's narrative of outsiders trying to tell us how we can and can't live. Do they just leave this alone and hope it all falls to pieces of its own accord? I think that's probably the wisest move. Go on making reasonable um, statements in in public and and probably playing hardball in private and and in fact again previous experience less major economies it's true but these populist um, remedies don't last and and nor do the governments that advance them so you know it, unless unless they're going to deliver which I, I I think is pretty unlikely I think that the European Union needs to kind of stick to its last and hope that that this one doesn't one quick PS on this of course he's not yet prime minister the Italian Italian president under the system, uh, Mattarella, has the final say, and there were rumours, which, which have not been confirmed, that he will regard uh, Miss, Miss, um, Giuseppe Conte as not sufficiently experienced to hold this post. But of course, should he do that, there would be real instability, there would be elections and possibly worse, um, more instability. So he probably will be prime minister, but it ain't a done deal yet. Okay, well, let's look finally at Hong Kong, where a recent survey, with the usual caveats about research by self-serving private entities obviously applying, has come up with some interesting statistic vis-à-vis local newlyweds. Fully 32% of new married couples in Hong Kong continue living apart with their parents after marriage. The reason is the unavailability and or unaffordability, two terrible words to put in a radio script, of anywhere to live. This is not an unusual problem in the cities of the developed world, obviously but it is especially severe in always tightly packed Hong Kong. Um, Isabel, 32% of new married couples staying with their parents, does that strike you as a, a plausible figure? Well, it's it, a lot of people. It, it is a lot of people. It strikes me... What strikes me as, as surprising about this story was that they were staying with their respective parents instead of moving in mm. with one set. Now, that struck me as unusual, or at least the, the people who were interviewed seemed to be doing that. That is unusual. That's more like a kind of walking marriage of the kind they have down in southwest China. Um, but actually, the conditions that produced this are, you know, are, are pretty evident. And, and in London, where we where we are, uh, you have a not dissimilar situation well, in, so. in that you know my my own uh, young who are of an age at, at a time when I had already you know made a couple of purchases, serial purchases of housing, uh, are so far off the possibility of being able to do that that there is this enormous gulf between incomes and and property. Now. That's because there's been a lot of loose money going around the world and people have been buying property and banking it. Um, but in Hong Kong, of course, there's, that's much worse because of the proximity to China. It's a very easy place to go and park your money. And there have been so many tensions in Hong Kong about the influence of the mainland, including the people who do come and live in Hong Kong, but the people who buy apartments. And as you, as you pointed out, there isn't any room for expansion in Hong Kong. You can only go up, really. Um, so you have far too many people chasing far too little property and it as long as the prices go up uh, speculative uh, investment will go on and that's not good for 
poor people. I mean, Ivor, as Isabel correctly points out, this is not a, a unique phenomenon in Hong Kong. It's very much the case in London. It's very much the case in my hometown of Sydney. It's the case in, in big and happening cities all over the world. But it, it has happened actually quite quickly. If you think back as recently, and I'd prefer to think this as recent as 20 years ago in London, uh, property was actually, certainly by the standards of now, really quite cheap. Um, is there a single reason why that has changed all over the world? Or is it the same thing happening for different reasons? Well, I think there are two separate issues there. One is the price of property and the other is the general... I mean, one talk about lifestyle, the people living together became very much accepted in the West even more than 20, 30, 40 years ago of post-68, living together, sex before marriage, the, the, the pill, all of that social revolution did mean that marriage was no longer seen as the necessity for couples to have families. Um, I think that that trend then went into reverse with the economic, the financial recession as people huddled together for security. But at the same time, of course, property prices went up because if you had money and you were very worried about the markets with some justification, then bricks and mortar was the place, particularly if your money came from dubious sources and you wanted to hide it from the authorities and not pay too much tax. No names, no pack drills. But it did mean that we know that people speculated in property. Wealthy people bought lots of property. And that forced up prices at the higher end. And, of course, the effect of forcing up at the higher end was to force it up at the lower end as well. So, if you like, we're looking at yet another impact, ongoing impact, of the 2008 financial crisis. I mean, Isabel, do you think it's going to change cities? Will people just basically stop living in them? I, I, I do wonder if that's going to become a thing when you see that the combination of the expense of living in cities... Plus the fact that for more people in more fields, it's it's possible to work from pretty much anywhere. Well, I think in in for for that generation, that trend is already pretty pretty clear here. Uh, the young people are moving out to cities to second tier cities, you know. So they're going to Bristol and and and, um, and or north to Manchester or Sheffield or you know uh, people where where it's it's like a snapshot of ten years ago. You there is a, a much more sensible relationship between your uh, income and and the price of property because in those cities property hasn't become an asset class you know we've had this enormous transfer of wealth upwards to into the you know financial titans and away from regular wage earners and that money is has been looking for investment for 10 20 years property has been the great asset class it's also a very easy way to launder money as Ivor says so you know you have a very unhappy social product well, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Isabel Hilton and Ivor Gaber, thanks both very much for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, researched by Anne Roberts. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. Music next at 1900. It's the Monocle Culture Show with Rob Bound. I'm back with more on the day's main stories on the daily at 2200. Midori House returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London time. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. 